You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 54. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Key Conversations for Leaders. I'm your host, John Ryan, and today we have a very special guest, David Wheatley. David is a principal and chief question asker at Humanergy. He works with leaders who are engaged in transitions to new roles, new scope, or improved results. A facilitator, trainer, and coach, he has worked for 20 years with government, manufacturing, healthcare, law enforcement, technology, and financial institutions to challenge their thinking and push them ahead. David asks his clients the right questions at the right time, and he supports organizations through strategic planning and helps them overcome roadblocks using a framework of values-based commitment and stakeholder mapping. He's originally from Leeds, England, and David is a former Scotland Yard police officer. He is a graduate of the Handon Police Academy in London and is a senior fellow at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. David is the co-author of the books, 50 Do's for Everyday Leadership Lessons, Learned the Hard Way, so you don't have to, and What Great Teams, uh, so What Great Teams Do, Great. How Ordinary People Accomplish the Extraordinary. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show, David. You're welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate the intro. You're welcome. And you know, would you tell us a little bit about how about your journey to becoming the principal at Humanity? How did you end up in in this amazing position? Well, it's uh, I appreciate the asking. It's like most journeys. It's uh, has its turns and and curves, and is, is rarely straight. And um, as you pointed out in the intro, my first real job was uh, Bobby in Scotland Yard. And uh, so they taught me to ask good questions. And that's been a theme throughout my, my career is uh, trying to ask good questions. Now, I, I went from doing it from a law enforcement perspective to doing it from a personal development, a professional development perspective. Uh, and I actually started that when I was in the police. I, I had the opportunity to do a little bit of leadership development when I was a, a, a cop. And then I went back to school and did a bit more. And then I've continued to do that. But it, the theme tends to be this, I, and I prefer my version of the bio, which says I try to ask good questions, and occasionally I do. <laughs> but my team says I have to move away the, from the self-deprecation. But the, you know, the, I think everything as a leader should be about working out the question that people need right now. And if you ask it at the right time and the right way, then it unlocks a whole bunch of potential. Well, I love that identity of the chief question asker, and 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 I think you and I could both debate about the um, self-deprecation and when to use it and when not to use it. I'm certainly in marketing; people are going to say try not to self-deprecate, but but there's a reality of humility to asking questions and and being vulnerable when you ask questions. Like like I think you're also insinuating. What was it that really started your love of questions? Did that begin in the police academy, or was it even before then? Well, uh, you know that you taught as a cop to ask the right question and you can read so much more into it if you ask the right question especially if it's more open-ended because you know people are having to think about things and and especially if they're trying to weave a story they have to think about what story they've already weaved and so you can see some of that and so you you're taught to work out the right question that gets as much information as possible and when you turn that to a development role and my job as a, a leadership coach for the last 20 years I try to ask a question that unlocks people's thinking because, uh, you know, it's more powerful if people come up with the idea themselves. And and if you can ask a question that makes people stop and think, there's nothing more beautiful in that moment that you see somebody say, ah, as they just find the answer in the head. And, and then they go through, well, why didn't I ask that question? 
And it's because you, you kind of bog down in the situation and sometimes you don't always see the clarity of the question that you needed. And so when I do my best work, that's it. And the the title came, my um, we've never had titles in our organization particularly. We've always said, take the title you need to get the job done. And, um, and then a few years ago, my business partner started putting chief insight officer on his LinkedIn account. And I was thinking, okay, I need to, to match this. And uh, it's funny you mentioned it because my first thought was I'm going to be the chief humility officer. But then I thought I will be the only person that found that funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll laugh uh, with you. I love it. And the, the other people might have taken it too seriously. And then, but then I got down to the, the root of what am I doing when I'm doing my best work? I ask a good question. And so chief question answer see, asker seemed to be the right title. Well, I, I understand that um, Prince Harry now has a role with the organization where he is the chief impact officer. And it seems like that trend to a more customized title rather than traditional might be maybe taking off in that direction. Well, and you know, from a marketing perspective, as you mentioned, it's also a little bit catchier, isn't it? It gives you a bit of a breadth. Um, now I work with a large credit union here in, in Michigan that they have a chief experience officer. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that idea as well, because her role is about creating the best experience for that credit union's membership. And and she's you know one of the senior people in the organization, but it's that, that title really sums up what she should be focused on. Well, I mentioned we probably both agree that what that does, that title, is it relates to your identity. And the way you view yourself is going to change your whole focus. So when you consider yourself the chief question uh, officer or asker, <laughs> question ask chief question asker, make sure I was, yeah, say it correctly, that that now gives you that lens even more in the forefront. Are there any specific questions that, that you go to time and time again that tend to be in your back pocket that you, that you like? Uh, that's that's a great question. So I appreciate that. Uh, one of my favorites is help me understand that. So which, you know, it's a go-to that people can say something and you ask, help me understand that. And it's amazing what else comes out in, in that situation. Um, but you know, we found that uh, the, it's thinking about what the question starts with and making it as short as possible uh, because some of the best questions are short. You know, Why? is another way of saying, help me understand that, but help me understand that has a slightly less abrupt uh, approach to it. But uh, um, another of my favorites is, when have you had a similar experience before? Um, But we have some simple rules that a question should not be able to be answered yes or no, if it's gonna be a powerful question. And it should not be a advice disguised as a question. And we can all be guilty sometimes of saying, well, have you thought about doing a, B, and C, which sounds like a question, but is actually advice disguised as a question. And so a powerful question should not be able to be answered yes or no, should not be advice disguised as a question. And it shouldn't have any judgment in there because sometimes we can also be guilty of putting judgment in, especially with your kids when my kids are all grown now. And sometimes I can hear myself asking a question that has deep judgment embedded in it. And it's like, oh, stop that. And to come back to your original point, that putting chief question asker on your title actually forces me to think about asking better questions. So, Well, it sounds like you've done some reflecting on what makes a good question and what doesn't make a good question. 
I imagine when we grow up, we're not really trained to ask good questions. What are some differences that that you see in your organization in the way that you approach problems versus maybe the average person who doesn't think about asking the right question at the right time? I don't think there's anything special about it. It's, it's just that we're, we train people in one way and then we expect a behavior differently when they get to the more senior leadership ranks. And if you think about it, you, you whatever role you do, you get rewarded for solving problems and fixing things. Whatever it is you're doing, that tends to be your knowledge is what gets rewarded. And then when you become a leader, if you keep that as your go-to mechanism, that you solve problems and fix things, then you're not empowering the people beneath you, which then means that you're not creating the space to be more strategic in your role. And so that transition from having the knowledge and solving things and fixing things directly to being able to ask a powerful question that opens that thinking in other people is the transition that it goes from being really a follower to being a true leader, that ability to, to submit myself. I don't have to be the problem solver of the answer. I just need to come up with a question that gets you there because then you'll be excited about owning it. And that feeling will be resonant in you. And I can go away with a warm feeling without having to say, ah, but you needed my question. I just go away saying I, I developed and empowered these people. That's the biggest challenge that I find in, in any leader is making that transition. And we've spent 20 years helping people with that. It sounds like you have to really um, put the ego to the side, grab some humility and, and vulnerability and, and put it back on their court to help them develop that skill rather than trying to take ownership and, and have that sense of, yay, I led you to that solution. Is that part of the thinking that you have in, in your approach as well? Yeah, I think that should be any leader's thinking. And I, I think the first thing you said there is most critical. We have to be willing to put our ego to, ego to one side. Because if our ego gets in the way, then it's all about us. Leadership should be all about them, whoever it is that I'm leading. And so you know, I, I, in my coaching work, have found myself asking a question that's got somebody someplace. And then you hear that somewhere else in the organization. And like I say, you, you have to reward yourself with the warm feeling that is, oh, I know I started that back here, but it's really cool to see other people owning it and moving along. And I often feel like uh, it must be like being the presidential speechwriter. Now, you spend all this time and effort refining your art, but somebody else gets all the, the credit for it. And whenever that's spoken, it's somebody else's. But you must be able to reward yourself with the warm feeling inside that other people are doing really well. And that's, in my mind, what leadership is about. I love that perspective. As, as part of that process, you know, I know in working with clients and executives, sometimes there's some struggle around taking the time extra to, to coach and mentor people through the problem-solving process rather than just solving it yourself. Do you have, I imagine you've come across that as well and say, well, it's just faster to do it myself. What suggestions, advice, uh, ideas, recommendations do you have for people who might be thinking about that, it's faster just to do it myself rather than to really take the time to invest in my team. Well, and they're right that this time it's faster for them to do it themselves. But that's a very short-term perspective, isn't it? That, that how many more times is it going to be faster for them to do it themselves before that's what they're doing? And besides, if, if I'm doing it myself, I don't need you. And which means that I'm working at a level beneath where I should be. Um, one of my favorite quotes, I can't remember who it's from, but it's the idea of 
we, we never might make time to do it right, but we always find time to do it over. And that's the thing that I would push to people and say, okay, you don't make time to do it right. You won't take the time to ask the questions and develop the person, but you'll make more time later on to fix it yourself and to take care of it yourself. Uh, but we're not empowering and building the team beneath us. So we're not acting as a leader. We're still problem solving. I love both of those reframes, right? It's all about time in your perspective. So if you don't have time to do it right, you're not going to have time to do it right later on. And it's it's such a huge reframe. Just even accepting that is going to immediately shift your focus and think about the long-term versus the short-term. Is that one of the skills? Because I know in, in writing your book, you know, what great teams do great, what was it that really inspired you to focus on on that aspect of of the organization? Uh, that's based on a model that we've used for the best part of the last twenty years, as, and developed and evolved. and um, And so there's some pieces that, because none of it's rocket science, uh, all we're doing is framing up in some simple ways what we've seen has been the difference between those teams that have been very successful and those that have been less so. And the the main thing at the front of it to get to your point here is if we spend time setting up the team right it saves us a whole bunch of problems later on and that setting up is making sure that we get to know each other and what skills we bring to the table making sure that we've got clarity about what we're trying to achieve in the environment that we're currently in and establishing some what i call non-negotiables so what are our expectations of how we work with each other because if we have those things those questions answered the rest of it we can guess at because it's going to fall within uh, that picture of what success is. And, uh, and so the more we're willing to spend the time there, the less it's going to cause us pain again later on down the line. I love the theme there about, uh, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and putting the energy in up front to set the rules and the culture and the dynamics that you have there. Is that also where you would have conversations around personal responsibility inside of a team? Yeah, that I mean, that goes a, a long way to that. Are you are you taking the time as the leader to do that? But then even if you're not the leader of the team, are you doing the right things? And uh, you know, the second major aspect of the book and what great teams do great is really about that personal choice, which uh, I believe that leadership is about the choices we make on a daily basis that influence and impact the people around us. And so if it is about personal choice, then everybody is making leadership choices daily. And we break those into two simple ones at, at that's most, uh, most simple end, which is I can make green path choices or red path choices. And we use the green and red as a traffic light uh, kind of analogy, but the green path choices are when I'm about the greater good. So what I'm aligned as to what we're trying to achieve. I'm making sure that everybody's understood and I'm forward focused on a solution versus red path choices, which are attack, avoid, blame, excuses, uh, ignore, accommodate, def deflect, uh, all those kinds of things, which we can all get into the habit of doing. But if we're operating that way, that's part of the problem. If we're operating in the green path, then we can be part of the solution. It, it seems quite obvious when you lay those two choices <laughs> out there, like which path obviously is the one you want to go towards. Do you ever find teams organically focusing on the green path or is there a natural tendency that kind of go down the red path for self-preservation and other you know drives that we might have uh, i mean you're raising a culture question there in in some ways that depends on the culture as to what our first tendency is if the culture is one of if you 
stick your head out, it gets shot off. Then it's very easy to go red path and point the finger at somebody else. If the culture is one that encourages learning and alignment and cooperation, then it's very easy to go green path. And, and if the cultures that we work with in some of the organizations we work with have got very used to that green path culture. And then that enables people to stand up and say, hey, I screwed up and uh, I need some help fixing it. And then everybody else gathers around and says, okay, help me understand. What do we need to achieve? Let's work on fixing it because people are, are happy to help when that's that kind of admission. Whereas if people are going into that, well, it wasn't me, it was somebody else, then we can't trust you and we're not willing to come around and help when you need it. And so you're just creating this death spiral of behaviors that destroys the culture if we go red path all the time. Is it fair to say that if you're seeing red path behavior, that as a leader, you're getting feedback on the parameters and the culture that you've established from from that role? Uh, I think that would be fair. I, th I think culture, in a lot of ways, is a direct reflection of leadership. Now, I, I put a, an asterisk by that and say, sometimes you've not been in the role long enough to change the culture, but it can be a direct reflection. And um, that's why we try to make it simple in, in the book that we can list off that attack, avoid, ignore, defensiveness, blame, those things, because they're very real and they're, they're things that people can get a handle on and recognize and they can ask themselves, hey, am I part of the solution? Am I part of the problem here? And so if leaders are seeing that, they can align the group and keep asking that question. But the first question should be, am I helping or am I hindering? It, it seems so simple when you put it in <laughs> those dichotomous terms. Am I helping or am I hurting? Um, am I creating that culture or not? What other suggestions do you have for leaders to help them build those green path cultures and, and green path teams? It goes back to what we are saying earlier. It takes the intent and the time and the investment to say, we'll have this conversation and we're willing to keep having the conversation and we're willing to create an environment where we encourage that conversation. And the more we do that, the more people are likely to come on the uh, online with you and start walking down the green path. I think the other thing is to recognize that we're all human. And, uh, you know, the, we paint a picture in the book about the choices you make are laying the path ahead of you in your life. And you want to be able to look back and see a mostly green path that you walked. That would be a good thing. However, we're all human. So we know that there's some red bricks in there. It's just that can, you can wash out the red bricks by putting more green ones in. And you don't really see the red bricks if they're one in 10. But if the red bricks are one in two, then it's going to be a very mottled looking path. And so we understand that we all make mistakes. We all go red path. The challenge is how quickly can you recognize that and get back on the green path and say, oh, yeah, I screwed up there. Let's work on fixing it. And please uh, accept my apologies and help me. But David, that's a very green path perspective on accountability <laughs> yes, and humility. So yeah. I, no, I I really appreciate that because you're, you're right. And I think inside of that is also letting go of the idea of perfection. And no one's going to be perfect. We're human. And owning that also creates a, a culture of ownership, like we mentioned earlier, humility and uh, collaboration and honesty and trust. With all of the transitions that are happening, I mean, clearly right now, as we hopefully end the, the pandemic here and, and the world are on that path to doing so, there's right now there's a shift, if you don't want to be asking on a, on a current topic, a shift going back into the workforce. And you may have seen a little, and heard from clients and otherwise, where there's a lot of conversations around employees 
not wanting to come back full time or and how does a manager i understand they're, they're being pulled in different directions how how do you do you have any suggestions on how to navigate that for leaders who have to have those critical conversations uh, in the coming months i think that's a, a great question that a lot of us are going to be asking um in different organizations so i've got some clients that are looking at going back to 100 percent what they call bums in seats and so you will be in the office you will be here and I think that they are potentially going to see some challenges with recruiting because the last 12 months has shown us we can do it and shown us we can have a different kind of lifestyle. And uh, most people, especially the younger folks that are coming up there in the organization, are going to want some level of hybrid. And so then it gets to how do I manage a hybrid team? And, and people have, I was trying this conversation yesterday, people have said it's been harder to manage a virtual team and my challenge has been it's only hard if you're not doing the things that you should have been doing in person. And the response I got back was, well, it's real easy to have an organic conversation when I can just walk across the corridor and ask John, hey, John, what's happening with this? Or I need some help with that. And it's like, yes, it is. But you've just interrupted that person. And do you realize the impact of that interruption? Because that's what you won't do on Zoom. You say, I'm not going to reach out to John and say, if you've got five minutes to have this conversation, because he, he might be busy and I, I might interrupt him. Well, take that thinking on Zoom and apply it in the office and schedule the time or take the office thinking and apply it to Zoom. And again, schedule the time and send that note out and say, have you got five minutes for a quick face-to-face -face chat? Uh, but if you've been struggling with it, it's been about leadership rather than it's been about the circumstances and the situation. And so as we come out of it, I think that, the smart organizations will have some form of hybrid office to home time, um, whether it's three days and two or whether it's some people are in place and some people aren't. I think the value of the last 12 months is we've all got used to seeing some people on the screen. And so it's a lot easier to have a hybrid meeting because we're very conscious of that. Uh, and so I think it's we got two choices, aren't we? We can either look for three years ago and want that back or we can look to the future and say, how do we manage in this new world that we're entering into and how do we maximize our, our work together and let's put the structure in place to make that happen. Well, from some basic leadership principles, I love that adaptiveness and vision, forward thinking, empathy, considering your client, your audience, which is your team, the culture that we're in, like a lot of amazing ideas inside of that. So one of the things I want to point out that I really appreciated was the proximity in office, when you can go across the hall and talk to someone and interrupt their day, the word you said was very deliberate on that you're not respecting their workflow and their work time. You're not actually, so instead of using proximity, you actually just have to have a little bit more intention and use the technology appropriately while respecting their workflow and find a way that works for you. It actually could enhance your leadership rather than just living kind of on that simple, simple I guess, convenience. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's funny, we, we wrote the book last year and, and put it out just in time for all the conferences to shut down so we couldn't get out and sell it. And uh, and what we found ourselves doing, though, is getting some feedback where we wrote an additional couple of chapters. So the first one, we got some encouragement from some of our friends in the DEI world that we hadn't addressed uh, diversity, equity and inclusion enough in the book. And so we worked with them to create a chapter nine, which is available from our website. But then also chapter 10 is about how we manage virtual teams because it gets to this exact point that you're talking about, which is we have to try and emulate the best practices that worked before virtual teams. And that best practice wouldn't have been to go and interrupt somebody. It would have been to say, you've got five minutes and we can always meet in the, the break room. 
but the physical presence was what people enjoyed. And we can still do that. We just have to do the same thing over Zoom or Teams or whatever it is you're using. Just send people a note and say, if you've got five minutes sometime this afternoon, we can have a Zoom. We can touch base. I can still see you. And, and we can have that conversation in an appropriate way. But it's this emulating the best practices and it's understanding what were the best practices before and what was bad practice that we allowed to happen. Absolutely. And I think it sounds like you really have used this opportunity to enhance the the book and and adapt as as the opportunity presented itself to really incorporate some feedback and add even more value to your to your readers and, and i want to bring, bring that back up in just a moment on the corporate side clearly this is a transition you know we've always been in transition in business it sounds like the the, the pace of transition is obviously increasing and i've seen some predictions around mergers and acquisitions that since last year was a little bit a slower year in terms of that type of thing, that we're really poised for a lot of transitions in the in the coming years with all the the money that's ready to go in terms of acquisitions and divestitures. Why do you think it is that sometimes I know you've worked with companies in M and A space. Why do companies sometimes have that resistance inherently when they come together and form that larger organization? Uh, it's interesting because you've you've obviously been on a theme of your questions here because. I think you can probably predict what my answer is going to be. But um, when I see that merger and acquisition activity, and most of my experience has been in the credit union world, actually, which has been rolling around. If you know anything about credit unions, they, they lose a new credit union every uh, week or two uh, at the rate because of merger and acquisitions. And part of it makes a lot of sense that a small credit union that started to uh, support a manufacturing facility uh, is no longer as uh, as viable or as useful to people as a larger one that has more capability. Uh, the key difference, though, is uh, between it working and it not, is culture. And are we paying attention to the culture that we're putting together? Because we can do all the math and put all the spreadsheets together and say, this is going to work and this is going to be a value. But if we aren't understanding the differences in the cultures, then we'll never be able to maximize that financial value that we're looking at on the spreadsheet. And that's the piece that I find most leaders in that world miss out, is let's just think about what that's going to look like and what work we need to do on making sure that we get the best out of both cultures for this new culture that we're creating. Because it's not one absorbing the other. It's we have to create a new culture and we have to be willing to go back to the beginning. And it comes back to the bare bones again. When one person joins or leaves a team, that's a different team. And so we have to go back to the setup and say, okay, let's reorient to what we're about. It's the same with organizations. It's just amplifying. That was exactly the next question I had for follow-up is how do you know when the when the team has actually changed substantively and any change, whether someone leaves, someone joins, that's a different team and all the rules have to be reestablished. The culture has to be reestablished or, or else you're not going to have that, that integration. Thank you so much. One, one last question, if you don't mind. Uh, obviously, here at Key Conversations, we feel that conversations are the key to a lot of things. Dave, would you mind sharing if you happen to have uh, a conversation that you can think of that had a, a major impact on you, either personally or professionally? Oh, and I was thinking about this as I, uh, I came on today, that uh, I go back to one of my mentors at uh, college in my undergrad, uh, who continues to be a mentor, even though he probably doesn't know it. He's uh, he's way up into his 80s now and retired and, and focusing his efforts on some really important um, environmental work. But uh, he would talk about um, in classes and one-on-ones, he was always critiquing me and probably uh, more so than I wanted at the time, but the value of that paid off in the long term. 
know, as he pointed out things, and he, and he wouldn't be critical. I'm sure he was asking great questions. I was just resistant to it. But he would look at the idea of adventure, because we were talking about adventure, as being slotted into four areas. And we would have this conversation about you can be at the play end of adventure, or you can be in an adventure section, which is kind of fun. Or then you can move to frontier adventure, which is where you're really at the cusp of your learning and capability. And then the fourth step is you're in misadventure, which is when everything's gone horribly wrong. And having that conversation way back when we were talking about you know, teaching kids kayaking and sailing and things like that, uh, that conversation still resonates in the work that I do today. And you think about the M&A conversation we are just having, you, know, you could slot a potential M&A into one of those four boxes and say, is this play? Is this just easy? Are we just messing around? Is this adventure as in we're actually, you know, this feels like it's good. Is this frontier adventure where we're pushing ourselves and this is really feels like we're on the cusp or is this potential misadventure where we could die? And um, I think that's that was a great series of conversations that I had with Colin Mortlock, what's it now, 30-odd, 40 years ago, that uh, still play in my mind on a regular basis. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that wisdom. Definitely one I look well, forward to pondering more I'll about. Thank Colin for sharing it all that time ago. <laughs> Wonderful. David, thank you so much for being here. What's the best way for people to find out more about you and Humanergy and also to uh, take advantage of your books along with those bonus chapters? Well, uh, I appreciate you asking. I'm on LinkedIn, of course, as is Humanergy. Uh, we also have a YouTube site and a podcast, the Humanergy Leadership Podcast. And, um, and you can find that wherever you pod. Uh, and those extra chapters, the, the book is available. Book, what Great Teams Do Great is available from all good bookstores and Amazon, as I tell people. And um, <laughs> But I encourage folks to go to all the good bookstores first where they can order it for you and let's share the wealth with your local bookstore. Um, the ninth chapter on um, race, power, and what great teams do great is available for download from humanity.com. In the book section, you'll see the extra chapter. And chapter 10, we're, we're being a little bit more restrictive on that. And uh, if people send me an email uh, and I'm available at david at humanity.com, I will send them a, a copy of chapter 10. But uh, we're not being as liberally give away with that. And chapter 10 is all about the virtual what great teams do great. That sounds fantastic. I'll put a link in all the show notes so those are available for our listeners. And they can always reach out to you for chapter 10 as well. David, thanks so much again for being here. Appreciate you. Well, thank you, John. Appreciate you having me. And thanks for listening and for watching. Until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. If you enjoyed the show, please let us know. Give us a rating or write a review. And if you'd like to connect with me and other like-minded leaders, I invite you to join our Facebook group called Develop, Empower, and Lead, where I deliver free live training every week. If you go to developempowerlead.com, it will redirect you right there. Hope to see you there soon.